0: All right. Well, open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter two, and um, I'll take a little break after this for a, a short Christmas series, uh, and then we'll pick up again because we're going through First Thessalonians. But uh, we'll finish chapter two um, before we uh, uh, have Christmas messages next year, next week. Um, so First um, Thessalonians chapter two, verse seventeen, and I'll read to the end of the chapter. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy, and our joy. Um I'll announce this first, that Christ is coming again. The Lord Jesus is going to return uh, again. And so let me ask you this question. Is the return of Christ good news? Is the return of Christ good news? And uh, I know it will be good news for the world. Christ's enemies will be defeated uh, when he returns as king of kings and lord of lords, and his people will be rewarded. The curse will be repealed, and that's all we've known from life on this earth, so it will be very different. Um, wars will cease. Um, the creation will be set free from its futility. And I hope you believe all of that. And it's uh, right around the corner. Christ is going to return. I hope you believe that because it's true. Uh, and he's coming very soon. But I, I mean a slightly different question about will it be good news. And that is, will it be good news for you when Christ returns? Will it be good news uh, for you when he returns? What will he say to you? When he returns, how will he look at you? Uh, When he returns, will you stand or will you fall? When he returns, will it be joy or will it be sorrow? Will it be for your glory or will it be for your shame? Well, how you answer that question about Christ's return reveals how you perceive his attitude towards you now. Christ's attitude towards you now. Is Christ's attitude towards you now gracious? Is his attitude towards you now favor, or is Christ stingy with his grace towards you and you're still stuck in the bitterness of your sins and the bondage of uh, iniquity? Uh, how you answer that question about Christ's return and whether it's good news for you also answers with what kind of response, what, with what kind of attitude you approach your responsibilities on this earth to love your neighbor, to preach the gospel uh to others, to restrain evil as you have uh, opportunity and responsibility to do, to even to work. How do you approach that? With what attitude do you approach it? Do you approach those tasks with joyful abandon, spending and being spent, like uh the apostle Paul or do you approach uh those tasks and responsibilities cautiously, stingily, just like you perceive Christ's attitude towards you? Do you take as few of those responsibilities as possible? Or do you dive right in uh, to them knowing that Christ has favor towards you and that he will see you through uh, all of them in one way or uh, another? Well, the Thessalonians, we've been talking about them, the Thessalonian believers um, and the new church in Thessalonica, they were waiting for Christ's return. And no one needed to remind them of that. That was very vivid to them. They they knew when they became uh, believers that it meant Christ is going to return and we're, we're waiting, we're expecting it. And so uh, they were certainly waiting for Christ's return. But as time passed, in fact, not very much time uh, from their conversion, they started to lose their boldness. They started to lose their joy in waiting for Christ's uh, return. And where did that show up in uh, their lives? Well, it showed up in their attitude towards their present responsibilities, that they weren't tackling them with the same joy uh, with the same spirit that they had uh, before and so by the time second Thessalonians was written which kind of addresses the same problem as uh, first Thessalonians some of them had narrowed the scope of their poss- uh, of their responsibilities that they were willing to tackle so narrow that they wouldn't even work they were just sort of paralyzed by their waiting for the return of Christ yet without a lot of assurance Uh, without a lot of joy, not sharing, not knowing exactly what to respect, expect when, uh, Christ, uh, uh, returns. And so, uh, instead of, um, joyful boldness towards their responsibility to say, I know the Lord is on my side. Uh, and I know not because of anything about me. But here's the joyful part about the good news because of Christ, that the Lord is going to take care of me and he's going to see me through these uh, responsibilities. Uh, and, and so they tackled them in that way. Uh, instead of doing that, they began to say, I want as few responsibilities as possible because I'm not sure the Lord is going to bless me. In fact, it might be better if I stay out of it. it might be better if someone else would take this responsibility and uh, not me. Well, the Christian life... Paul knew this, um, can't be lived and, uh, the responsibilities of the Christian life can't be embraced without joy and they can't be embraced without assurance, without knowing for sure that you are, uh, a child of God. Uh, there's no such thing as a joyless Christian life. And that's why Paul says, uh, in another place, rejoice always in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice just in case you forget it. He says, I'm going to say it again to, um, rejoice And so the Christian life is meant to be lived with joy. The second coming is meant to be awaited with joy, as if you're waiting for something more joyful than you could even uh, imagine. The second coming is good news, and it's good news for you if you're a believer. I'm speaking to you as if you're a believer. If you're not a believer, you need to change that. You need to change it this morning uh, and not wait, and and you can do it today. You can trust in Christ uh, today. There's no probation uh period. But if you're a believer in the gospel, the second coming is good news uh for you. Always just behind the scenes, and all the things that Paul addresses in these letters of first and second Thessalonians, um, is this issue of assurance. And and Paul seeking to restore this attitude of assurance to uh the Thessalonians. It's always kind of uh lurking behind the scenes, but it's right up front. In this passage uh, that we look at uh, this morning at the end of chapter two, where Paul is assuring the Thessalonians that their salvation is real and that the Lord's favor to them in Christ is um, real. Paul's been doing that um, in chapters one, two, and he's going to continue it in chapter three of Thessalonians in a very specific way. Um, he's arguing in a very loving way. To them in, in this part of the uh, letter, a very simple point, and that is why it is that he can be so bold as to thank God for their salvation. And to thank God for their salvation all the time. And to know he's not wasting his time in thanking God for their salvation when they've lost their boldness they're not quite as sure anymore that Christ's coming is going to be good news uh, for them. They've grown a little bit tentative in their ex- expectation of Christ's return, but he's thanking the Lord for their salvation, and he does it without hesitation. He does it boldly. He does it uh, uh, unceasingly. And so he, he he tells them that he's thanking the Lord for their salvation. Then he explains to them why he's so, so sure about their salvation. And so in chapters 1 and 2, um, he gives uh, descriptions of their conversion, and the effects of it, he reminds them that their conversion was a real one. And the most important part of that is he describes how they responded to the message of the gospel when the message first came to their town, when they first um, heard it. And they responded to the message of the gospel not as the word of man, but as God speaking to them. So when they heard this message about sin, greater than they ever imagined uh, before God, and guilt uh, before God, and then heard uh, the message about a savior sent by god to rescue sinners and then uh the the promise that if you believe in the lord jesus christ you will be saved when they heard all that in the gospel they said that's god speaking to me that's god's voice speaking to me that's god's promise to me that if i believe in this savior uh that i will uh be saved and so paul um describes this to him, he reminded them of the way they received the gospel. And that's the most important thing that he can tell them uh, to give them, to restore to them the assurance of salvation is to trace it back to its foundation, the word of God uh, itself. And so he spoke of that in chapter two and uh, verse 13. In our passage this morning, Paul's continuing in the same vein along uh, a little bit of a different uh, uh, line. And uh, so our passage, verse 17 to the end of uh, the passage, um, is Paul, um, he's explaining his love and his assurance towards the uh, Thessalonian uh, believers. Now, the way that our passage is sometimes approached, it's often approached uh, and understood by those who uh, interpret it, is that in our passage that we're going to look at this morning, Paul's defending himself against accusations against him that have made their way into uh, the church. And the accusation is that Paul is basically a a charlatan and um, that he really doesn't care about the Thessalonians. He's just trying to take advantage of them. And so uh, according to that way of understanding it, Paul's saying, no, I really do care about uh, you all, not only now, but even at Christ's return, uh, I'm going to uh, care about uh, you all. And so Paul, according to that understanding, Paul's main concern is to defend himself from the charge against him that maybe he doesn't care, uh, much about the Thessalonians. And so he's saying, no, I, I really do. I'm not a, I'm not a charlatan. I'm, I'm who I'm appear to be. I, I really love you all. Um, and I'm, I'm really genuine in, in, um, the message that I brought to Thessalonica, not seeking my own gain, uh, in any way. I don't think that's the best way to understand this. I don't think Paul's ministry was in doubt among the believers. In Thessalonica, I don't think that's the thing that needs to be bolstered and shored up is Paul's reputation and the reputation of the workers who um, came with Paul, but rather what needs to be shored up is the Thessalonians' assurance of salvation. And so, actually, I think Paul's sterling, unshakable reputation among the Thessalonians is the fulcrum. On which rests the real encouragement for the Thessalonians for their assurance of salvation. Our passage is a, it's a, it's a wonderful passage. It's, it's sort of a jewel-like, um, passage. It's a powerful argument that Paul makes to the Thessalonians that involves time travel. In other words, Paul is gonna build a bridge across time from the present to the future and then, uh, back again. He's going to say uh, to the Thessalonians, we love you and long for you with the affection of Christian brothers now. That's what we're doing in the present and in the future. In the future, in fact, when we're standing in the very presence of Christ, when he uh, returns and everything that's hidden has been revealed, we're going to feel the same way about you as we do now. We're going to be longing for you as uh, a Christian brother uh, at that time, in fact, what we feel towards you now at that moment is we're going to feel it even more because you're truly saved and because Christ is going to uh, uh, come and it's going to mean salvation for you. So it's a it's a wonderful passage, kind of a simple argument in that way. It's meant to help them with assurance of their uh, salvation. It's meant to make them stand boldly in their own um, salvation my outline this morning is in two points. First, the near end of that bridge and then the far end of that bridge. And so, uh, we'll look first at Paul's longing for them now. That's in verse 17 to 18 now uh, when he writes it. And then second, Paul's boasting then. Verse 19 and 20. That is on the, at the moment when Christ, uh, returns. So Paul's longing now and then Paul's boasting then. Let's look at Paul's longing. Now, that's verse 17 and 18. But we, brethren, have been taken away from you for a short time while in person, not in spirit. We're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. The subject of these uh, two verses is Paul's longing for fellowship and for ministry to these uh, believers who have become dear uh, to him. In the first ch- three chapters, Paul has been thanking the Lord for their salvation. And so he thanks God. Uh, chapter one, verse two, for their salvation. He thanks the Lord for them in chapter two and verse 13. He says, we're constantly thanking God for the way you received the gospel. He's gonna go back to thanking them again in chapter three and uh, verse uh, verse nine, for what thanks can we render to God for you? And uh, to his thanksgiving, for their salvation, he also adds in this passage, longing. Uh, we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, we're all the more eager with great desire to see your face. We're thankful for you, and we've been separated from you, and we're longing to see you uh, again. Paul uh, says that he has been taken away from them, and uh, the word that's used here, it, it uh, the Greek sounds like the word orphan, you would hear that in uh, the Greek word. He says, we've been orphaned away from you. And so uh, he refers to it almost as something that's happened to him passively. Remember the, the mob came and uh, they ganged up on one of the leaders of the church when Paul was gone. And through all of that, uh, Paul determined it was time for him to leave uh, the city and move on to uh, the next uh, city. But uh, he, he refers to it as a loss refers to it as leaving someone that you love, it refers to it as uh, being orphaned uh, from them. And so uh, he has been taken away from them physically, in person, but not in spirit. In person, uh, but not in heart, is uh, what he says. And um, uh, the distance, the, the absence of Paul uh, from the Thessalonians, it didn't break uh, the bond uh, but neither did it replace the desire to see them in person and to see them uh, face-to-face, which is the way um, Christian fellowship is meant to be expressed. That's the way he wanted to, uh, that's what he longed for when he wasn't able to um, to do this. And so uh, he refers to them as uh, brothers and says uh, when um, he was not able to see them, when he was taken uh, away from them, it's not that his desire to be with them died, in fact, it grew even stronger. It grew uh, all the more. We were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. It's an interesting thing. Uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, it seems that they knew not a single person in the city of Thessalonica before they showed up, which was less than a year before he wrote um, this uh, letter. And yet the Holy Spirit put the believers there on their hearts so that when they're separated, they feel like, They've been orphaned from them. And uh, as, as just a little bit of time passage, they're, they're longing to see them uh, all the more. It doesn't take the Holy Spirit long to teach you something. The scales can fall off your eyes in a moment if the Holy Spirit is uh, teaching you. And it doesn't take the Holy Spirit long to make believers dear to each other. So here they were. They weren't there very long. And uh, the Holy Spirit worked and put these believers on the hearts of Paul and Silas, uh, and Timothy, they had to leave, and they they missed them greatly, so uh, a a short time passed, made them only uh, more eager to see their face, and so Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, he says, I'm going to tell you about something that you can't see, I'm going to tell you about something that's in my heart, and uh, you can't see it, but it's real, and that is that the not only me, but uh, Silas and Timothy uh, as well are longing to see you. We're thinking about you. We're thankful to the Lord for your salvation. We wish we could be with you now. And that uh, he describes it not as, as something small, but as a, a great desire, with eagerness, with great desire to uh, see your face. And so Paul's in, in, in uh, a sense, he's tying that down one end of the bridge Across time, it's the present. Here's what's happening now. We're longing for you uh, now. And he's laying the pillars of this bridge and they go down deep. They go down deep. It's a great desire that he has uh, to see them uh, again. And he's uh, telling them what's in his heart and in the, in the heart of his uh, gospel coworkers as well. How deep do these pillars go in the present of Paul's love for uh, the Thessalonians? Uh, well, he gives them... Some tangible proof, um, something tangible, something that happened that shows his love uh, for them. And it happened more than once. Verse 18, for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once. And yet Satan hindered us. And so they they started in Thessalonica. They spent... Uh, maybe part of a year there. Then they went on to the next city and then Paul went to Athens and then finally to Corinth where he spent quite a bit of, of time here on this uh, missionary journey and that's where he's writing from uh, as well. But uh, during Paul's time in Corinth, which was just recently, Paul planned to go back and see the Thessalonians because he was longing for them. He, he, he never did it. He hadn't done it. It hadn't worked out. But Paul had set out the roadmaps He had packed his bags, he'd put it put the visit on his uh calendar. And uh Paul himself is the one who did this, not Silas and Timothy says, We're all longing for you, but I I'm apparently Paul was the planner. You know, he was the one who planned the trip and uh put it on the calendar, and so Paul says, I'm speaking for myself here. Uh I I wanted to come to you, was setting in motion to do it. I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us satan hindered us it didn't work out and actually paul attributes the reason why it didn't work out not to any lack of desire uh, within his heart not that he lost interest in the thessalonians and thought there'd be something better to do uh, but that satan himself hindered uh, uh, this uh, visit john macarthur in his uh, commentary writes he says satan wants to thwart the progress of god's kingdom as much as an army seeks to disrupt the advance of an opposing army. So Satan took an interest, even in something as small as this, just a, a visit to go back and encourage uh, the Thessalonians. And uh, Paul took an interest in it and started planning it more than once, at least twice, and Satan did too. So at least twice Satan uh, thwarted uh, this. Satan takes an active and personal interest in thwarting the work of the church and the advance of God's uh, kingdom Satan's mentioned three times in these uh, letters. He's mentioned here hindering Paul's visit. He's mentioned in chapter three as a tempter uh, to the Thessalonians, a discourager to them. And then he's going to be mentioned in chapter two of second Thessalonians as the power behind the man of lawlessness when all of Satan's purposes come to fruition and the man of lawlessness is put forward at, uh, at the end. Um, Paul doesn't, always attribute obstacles in the road uh, on his missionary journeys to Satan. In fact, in Luke's account, Luke chapter 16 um, and verse 6 says, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And so they uh, not clear exactly what happened, but the the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of jesus didn 't permit them to go where they wanted to go this uh, this was actually on the same missionary journey it actually was the Holy Spirit was sending them on to um, to Thessalonica when uh, that um, was happening uh, so paul doesn 't always attribute uh, obstacles in the road to satan i 'm reminded of a time in um, book of kings and chronicles where they're parallel accounts and the book of kings attributes an action to god that the book of chronicles attributes it to satan and i think the point is um, even satan doesn't act outside of god's sovereign control even when satan does his worst to uh, god's children he or anything that he does he unwittingly brings about God's purpose, and so God is uh, sovereignly in control of uh, Satan, but in such a way that all the hostility from those events comes from Satan, and all the good out of it comes from uh, God, and so this obstacle, um, whatever it was that prevented Paul from coming back and doing what he wanted to do and and, uh, making a quick trip up to encourage uh, the Thessalonian uh, believers how, however, that was uh, stopped. There was some sort of hostility in it. Uh, and that was Satan's. And so he attributes it to Satan. The hostility in it uh, did not come from the Lord, uh, but came from Satan. So uh, Paul uh, said, he's, he's really just, just talking about his desire uh, for uh, Christian brotherhood and for expressing that Christian brotherhood to uh, the Thessalonians. And he's just pointing out to them in a tangible way that that desire for them is real. It's as real as Satan is. And Paul um, locates his desire uh, for them tangibly and puts it in the conflict even between good and evil and the conflict between God and the forces of uh, darkness. Well, Paul's purpose, his purpose is to strengthen their assurance of salvation. And he's going to do it in this passage by building a bridge across time. And so this is the near end. It's Paul's longing for them now. I'm longing for you now. I'll prove it to you. I've been wanting to come and visit you. Satan himself is the one who, who prohibited me from expressing the longing that really is uh, in my hearts uh, for you now. That's the near end of the bridge. The far end of the bridge is Paul's boasting in Thessalonians then at the moment of Christ's return. And it's, it hasn't happened yet, but it's real to Paul. He can picture it, what he's going to feel. Something very like that for the Thessalonians in the moment of Christ's return. So let's cross that bridge through time together and go to verse uh, uh, 19. For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and our joy. In these verses, uh, Paul doesn't just say, listen, I want you to know Silas and Timothy and I are proud of you. We're proud of you. That in itself would have been a big encouragement to uh, the, the Thessalonians and would have carried uh, weight uh, for them. But he says something differently and something that carried much more weight, and especially with uh, the Thessalonians. And that is, he says to them, come with me in this bridge across time and Christ has returned. The king has returned and uh, we're in his presence. We've been raptured, let's say, up uh, to his presence. We're with him and we're even more proud of you now in the presence of uh, Christ. And uh, through this passage, the Holy Spirit is opening the door to every doubting Christian. To go through that uh, uh, same, across that same bridge through time and understand uh, this, and, and it's put in very tangible terms in, in terms of our uh, our boasting in one another at that moment, and especially Paul's boasting in uh, the Thessalonians. Paul puts this uh, in terms of a, a question to uh, the Thessalonians For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Um, the question, uh, the way it's put could even be, it could be who or what? Who is it? What is it that's going to make us proud in that moment? Who is it that's going to be our crown of exaltation and boasting uh, at, at that moment? And then he finishes the question by saying, well, who is it? What is it that's going to make us proud in that moment if it isn't you? If you're not it, I don't know who is it. He says, for who is our hope or crown of exaltation? if not you, in the presence of our Lord Jesus at uh, his coming. This is the far end of the bridge, um, and the pillars here are just as deep. In fact, they're even more so. Paul says at that moment, you Thessalonians will be our hope, um, our joy, and our crown of exaltation. And then um, in verse 20, he says, for you are our glory, and uh, our joy. And so I, I won't go into each one of those words uh, individually. Uh, there's the idea of the crown of boasting, like the crown that was put on the victor's head uh, after an athletic competition. Uh, but certainly joy is the keynote of this. In fact, the word joy is mentioned twice in uh, these verses uh, so that you, you can't miss it. In that moment... He says, you Thessalonians are going to be a great joy to us. In fact, if not you, who would it be? It's, it's, it's you. It's certainly you are going to be a, a joy uh, to us. So how do you imagine the scene of Christ's return? Paul pictures it as an explosion of joy. And uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly how to picture it. It'll probably be different than any of us uh, imagines it. I sort of imagine it as a whole in the clouds and a light coming through in Christ, the horn, uh, the trumpet uh, sounding and us being uh, uh, lifted up bodily into uh, Christ's presence to be uh, with him uh, forever as uh, his power is manifest on uh, the earth, not in a hidden way like now, but uh, openly. Uh, so Paul describes it. He, he doesn't picture it with a, a great deal of uh, pictures here. But he describes it as an explosion of joy, of rejoicing, having a crown of rejoicing. And it's not a private joy. It's a joy that's shared with the Thessalonians. Um, God has seen fit not for the angels to be the preachers of the gospel. Usually, we sometimes they are. We remember um, at Christmas time, um, the angels proclaimed glad tidings. They preached the gospel at Christmas time. Preach the gospel at Easter. You know they—they they told they were the first to say, uh, "He is not here. Uh, he is risen." And uh, it seems at the end times as well, uh, there'll be a, an occasion where uh, angels will preach uh, the gospel. But the main work of spreading the gospel through the Great Commission, God has seen fit not to be done by angels who are perfect, who've never experienced forgiveness, who've never experienced what it is to be transformed. Uh, but to be done by imperfect men and women, and for us to also uh, encourage one another as well along the way in uh, the Christian uh, journey, not to have angels minister to us, but for one another, for us to minister to one another. And there's reward for both of these things, for preaching the gospel to others, for encouraging others uh, as well. And uh, so Paul's picturing being rewarded for the way in which he's been used by God to encourage other believers and to spread the gospel to other believers. And, And there they are. And, uh, Christ is, uh, coming. He's bestowing a crown. He's bestowing a, a reward. And, uh, the other people are there and, and, and sharing in, uh, that joy with Paul at that moment. And so, uh, the Thessalonians, he says, I, I know that you're going to be a great joy to me, uh, at that moment. And that's why I'm constantly thanking God, uh, for you. Sometimes the way other people are depicted in, um, in, uh, teaching, uh, about the Lord is um, as sort of lower priorities that you learn to love. By, so you learn to love someone who's uh, worthy of your love kind of as training to uh, love what's higher, to love God, and then you kick away the ladder. You know, Once you learn to love God, you don't really need those people uh, anymore, which is wrong. First of all, we're not climbing up to God in any way. He came down to us, and he came down to us with love to spare, with immeasurable love, with overflowing love, and actually love for the unworthy, not for the most worthy, but for the most unworthy. And he teaches us to be this way uh, as well. In fact, he says, if you uh, believe in me, uh, my love in you will be like an overflowing fountain. Uh, John chapter four, verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water I will give him will become in him a well of water, springing up into, over, into eternal uh, life. And, uh, so, the love that we experience in Christ we give away to others. It's not uh, that we're taught to uh, measure out this love and then distribute it according to a, a hierarchy of rigid uh, priorities. No, it's, it's pictured like this, that the more you give away to others, the more that you have to give. It's uh, overflowing. Uh, to all and towards uh, the most uh, unworthy. And so it's not surprising when that's the love uh, of God that he he comes and shows to us that at the time of Christ's return and uh, of us meeting with Christ, the joy that we'll have uh, at that time will not be a a private joy, but a joy that overflows to all, even at that moment. And so we'll be looking at Christ and we'll be looking to the side uh, as well and looking at others that have been part of our journey along the way. Uh, others that uh, the Lord has used us to encourage them, and now they're there with joy, and their joy um, increases ours uh, as well. So Paul's uh, Paul's journey through time with the Thessalonians was to sound an end times note. It was to take them to uh something about the end times uh that they were waiting for uh it's a it's a note of joy of great joy and the purpose of taking them into the future was that that joy would be permanent with them the joy that they um will uh um, experience at that moment of the apostle paul being proud of them because Christ is not ashamed of them uh at that moment because their salvation uh is real is a joy that Paul wanted the Thessalonians to have now. He wanted them to have the joy of their salvation and the assurance of their salvation in the present. So he builds a bridge from the present to the future and the purpose is for them to take that joy and assurance uh, into the present, in, in the present, uh, with them, uh, now. The point is that the Thessalonians are now what they will seen, be seen to be, uh, in the second coming of Christ, which is precious, in the eyes of Paul and Silas and Timothy, which really means precious in the eyes of Christ. And that's the point uh, that he's making. The same is true for you if you believe in the gospel. If you believe in the gospel, if you take the gospel that you hear it not to be the word of man, but for what it really is, the word of God to you, then that same joy when Christ returns is your inheritance. It can never be taken away uh, from you, and it will be manifested when Christ returns. So let that joy, let that assurance of your salvation, which is yours in Christ, cause you, drive you to fearlessly and eagerly embrace the responsibilities of the present time, knowing that Christ himself is on your side. Our master is away He's left us for a time, and he's given us a task. In fact, he's given us uh, many tasks while he's away and before his return. Some of the tasks that he's given us is because we are believers. He's given us the task to transform evil, In fact, and, and no one helps us uh, in this task who's not a, a believer, and he's given us one tool to do this, and that's the gospel. There's only one tool that can actually transform evil and make it uh, to be good, and that's the task that he's given us as believers. There's some tasks that he's given us just because we're creatures created in the image of God. And that's the task to restrain evil, not to transform it. We do that as believers. We do that with the gospel. But he's given us a task to uh, restrain uh, evil. It's different uh, for uh, different people. Uh, it's And so different people have different roles uh, in that. But uh, all the tasks... That he's given us are tasks that involve other people, and they're tasks that are the very opposite of selfishness and of uh, apathy. So it's the task of evangelizing, task of parenting, the task of being a good neighbor, task of being a good friend uh, to others, task of being a husband, task of being a wife, task of being uh, an informed and engaged citizen, task of being uh, an elder, task of being a deacon. Uh, task of being a minister in, in whatever way you are uh, at this church and all those tasks go hand in hand together and Satan seeks to oppose all of them. All of those tasks involve taking a risk, taking a risk, the risk of being disappointed, the risk of embarrassment, the risk of failure, the risk of uh, wasting your time and looking foolish. And so you need joy for all those tasks. You need assurance for all those tasks. Assurance that the Lord is not embarrassed by you, that the Lord is graciously giving to you, and the Lord is not embarrassed by your efforts uh, in any of those tasks. These past years have been difficult years for us um, at Trinity. Um, We've had division. We've had discouragement as a church. And of course, it's not just that. The Lord has had uh, many other things that are, are good for us uh, at this time as well. Uh, but perhaps these have been difficult times for you as well. So perhaps the tempter is saying, give up on all of those. Lose your assurance and uh, lose your joy. So the answer to that from God's word is no. That uh, armed with joy and armed with assurance, uh, those difficulties are not to be seen as a threat, but as a challenge, that we're born for such a time as this. And so we're to face them armed with joy, armed with assurance, to be joyfully faithful in our time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that Christ is returning as King of kings and Lord of lords, that we belong to him, that we have joy awaiting us. We pray that you would teach us to approach our tasks with great joy, with uh, joy in you, with assurance uh, that you're with us and that you're guiding us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.